As I told you before, I'm willing to cope with you 100% to devote myself for this mission that's called Netflix and to bring the best outcome for me and for you and, and to make it something that never has been done before. This is Simon Levive in a voice note he sent me after his release from prison in Israel in May 2020. You don't know me, you don't know something, but uh, we definitely can do that something that's never been done before, never been seen before, which of course is gonna be, bring you and Netflix a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, profits and a lot of things, and it will be beneficial for both of us. I'd been in touch with Simon to offer him the right of reply, an opportunity to answer the allegations we were making against him in our Netflix film, The Tinder Swindler. Hi, Simon. As I mentioned in my last message to you, we are in production on the film. We'd still really, really like to speak to you, but as we hadn't heard anything back from you or your representatives, we're presuming that you didn't want to be involved. But let me know if I've misunderstood this. Whilst at first Simon seemed interested in taking part, once he heard that the film was going to be about the victims and not just about him, he became agitated and our voice memo exchange became a cat and mouse game which led us in circles. He insisted that the women were lying. I know the people you talk to, I know the people you approach to. Um... I know it all. I don't want it to be participating in something which I don't have control over. You're not going to represent me at the truth. You're going to represent what's going to sell more and what's going to be. And this is my problem. And if it wasn't this way, so then I won't mind. But once it is like this way, so yeah. So you can say one thing, the whole world going to see another thing. And as soon as I will see something which is not right, my lawyers will be more than happy to sue uh, everything, because everything you based on stories of other people, you don't base it on reality and truth and facts. And this is my problem. Simon was only willing to be involved if he could control our narrative. It wasn't a deal we could possibly accept. Simon began bombarding us with messages full of links to news articles about him. All of them were saying how brilliant Simon was. And one contained a surprising bit of news. Simon Levy, a competent financial genius, has bagged a lucrative offer from the entertainment genius Netflix. Netflix plans to release a documentary series on his life and career as a real estate giant. So now even we were being given roles in the cast of Simon's fantasy life. A documentary series about his life as a real estate giant was in the works? That was certainly news to us, and everyone else at Netflix. So we called his bluff. Hi again, Simon. Thanks for sharing the Israeli news piece. It sounds like you have a lot going on and all very exciting. I'm assuming the Netflix series you refer to in the article is the one that we're making? And with that, Simon disappeared. I'm Bernadette Higgins. And I'm Felicity Morris. And this is episode two of The Making of a Swindler. And just a warning, this episode contains strong language. In the last episode, we looked into the theatre of Simon Leviev, how he carefully staged his online and real-life worlds, 
drawing on an entourage of people, all designed to convince his victims of his legitimacy. This love con has been devastating for these women, not only financially, but also emotionally and psychologically. This time, we're going to take you on a journey back through Simon's criminal career to a time before he had even invented the character of Simon Levive to understand how he has honed his act. As we've gone further down the rabbit hole of Simon's life, we keep returning to the same questions. What sort of person could do this? Who is the man behind the mask? Who is the real Simon Levive? We've been circling around Simon for the last two years. We always wanted to talk to him. We've had many discussions over the kitchen table about Simon. Yeah. When we went into making this film, we knew that it was going to be the women's story that we wanted to tell. We want the film to stand as some kind of justice for them. We never wanted this to be a platform for Simon Levive to spill more of his lies or take us into the kind of fake reality show that is Mr. Levive. Mm. But when you're making a documentary of this kind and when you're making the allegations that we are and that the women are in the film, then legally you have to offer a right of reply. And so that's exactly what we were trying to do in speaking to Simon and sending him those voice notes. And it was just so peculiar, wasn't it? It really shows how deep the delusion goes, mm. that he thinks that he can tell us about the film that we're making for Netflix. Mm, we've gone back and forth about what could possibly be going on in this man's head, which is exactly why I went and met Kerry Danes, who is a consultant forensic psychologist. She knows more about these kinds of people than most. She's worked with loads of criminals and is particularly interested in con artists. Because I just think that the psychology of it is absolutely fascinating. And Simon's particular con is as old as time. It was just such a classic case, really, of the love rat. Back in the day, then we would have had our con artist having to go to lots of different parties and to really work the room to find a woman who was ready and primed to fall in love with him. But these days, wherever you are in the world, we've got Tinder. Within seconds, you can be connected to literally thousands of people who would make the perfect mark for this type of con artist. So this is somebody who is looking for love and then they're love bombed, the same kind of process that we see in abusive relationships. Every single one of the stages of the con is designed to really exploit the woman's emotions. And when your emotions come into play, all logical thought goes out the window, doesn't it? In fact, studies have shown that people in the first stages of love show the typical brain patterns consistent with people who have obsessive compulsive problems. So you think about them all the time, they absolutely take over your life and you fantasise about them all the time. And to that heady cocktail, Simon adds a dash of unattainability and mystery, so he's just out of their reach. He never spends very long in any one woman's company before he's flying off onto the next business deal. You want something more if it's scarce. 
So the less you get to see of somebody, actually, the more emotionally invested you're likely to be. And yet it still feels like a relationship because he's texting all the time. You're being updated with where he is for these uh, fictitious meetings that he's going to. Of course, he's going to meet other women. And it's just a constant bombardment, really. So you can imagine that it would just take over somebody's thought processes and just be incredibly exciting. He really is creating infatuation in these women. Wanna spend some time together, go to a warm place, be together, kiss you, hug you, squeeze you, touch your bum, <laughs> make love to you. Yeah, it will be alright. Soon we will have more of the time in the world, so everything will be fine. How was your day? How do you feel? Love bombing, as it's called in the context of abusive relationships, sets the women up for what comes next. Once he's got these girls in a very emotional state and they are imagining this great future, then, of course, he introduces this story, which is known in common circles as the rope. As in roping someone in. So he starts to drop clues about how he is at risk from these vague enemies and how his business is very dangerous. And he does something very clever. He says, I want to be upfront and honest about my life and my lifestyle because I want to give you the opportunity to get out. I explained to you now the situation a bit more and now you're aware and you know what is going on and now what I'm dealing with every day. So that's why you're more understanding. And I'm really sorry that we didn't have much time to spend together and to be more time together, but don't worry, soon everything will be all right and we'll spend more time together. And because they care about him, they do the opposite. They offer to stand by him and support him. And once you've voiced that commitment to somebody, it's actually much harder to then go back in your own mind. So when this crisis does occur, you've already said, no, I've understood this, I've understood your lifestyle, I've said that I'm going to support you. So it's a really nice bit of psychological persuasion going on there. I love that in the most difficult hour of my life, you are there for me and supporting me. And you're very important for me. Thank you. You're, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I love you. And I will never forget it to you. What are you doing for me? Thank you. Manipulation is the key skill for any con artist. You've got to be manipulative. You've got to be persuasive. But also they tend to be highly narcissistic. And Simon is no different here. But what Carrie finds more disconcerting about Simon is his behaviour when he's challenged. Usually a con artist will disappear in a cloud of smoke at that point. And what really struck me was the instrumental aggression that Simon used whenever these girls confronted him. Suddenly, the romantic texts would be replaced with angry threats. It's clear, threatening behaviour designed to make them go away and stay silent. And I think this is how he's got away with it for so long. And that's the darker side to his character and the more dangerous side. 
that is more along the psychopathic spectrum of behaviours. And that is worrying. So you wonder just how coercive his relationships get, to be honest. Is it just money that that he is willing to threaten women for? Who knows? He's a nasty piece of work. Yeah, I mean, he's the classic narcissist, isn't he? He's mm. like, so long as he's getting everything he wants, he's charm itself. I really like you, and you see, I really, really trust you. Trust you, not just trust you, trust you with my life. I miss you, darling. Thank you for you. I wish you a great morning, baby. You're amazing. You look beautiful. You look beautiful. You look beautiful. My darling, you will not touch me, only touch me. You will have everything. Who knows? Maybe you will be my the mother of my baby. The love bombing, right from the top. You're my dream woman. I want to marry you. I've never felt like this before. Have a hundred roses here. Come on this private jet. I want to have family with you. I want to settle down with you. I have heard everything that you've told me about what you want from your life, and here it is. I'm presenting it to you on a silver platter, and I can take it away. And by that stage, they're so enthralled by him. And the narrative that he sells is exactly what... Our generation growing up watching all of these rom-coms or Disney movies like Cecilia is that you meet, you have this incredible first date that's heady and romantic and you're swept off your feet, but then you might go through something difficult together. But at the end, you'll have a happy ending. And I think that for Eileen and Cecilia, they were literally just like, if this can just end, then it will be fine and we will have got through this and our relationship will be stronger. They had both told us that when... Simon turned, they saw this darkness. And I think that neither of us appreciated just how bad he got until we got into their WhatsApp messages. It seems like you, you're backing down from your word. We agreed something, so we agreed something. So please, every time with your ups and downs, I don't really got it. We said something, so stop to deal with the negativity, deal with the positivity. Stop with all this crap. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm not getting out money from you. I have paid it for you. I have paid you the money. So you owe me. Especially those messages that he sent Eileen where he completely he loses sounded it. like a demon. He sounds He's, deranged. He sounded like he was possessed. So do your part in the beginning and you will get you the money. You don't want to do it, so basta, bl- I will block you, I cut off the phones, cut off everything, go to the police and go, that's it, enough, it's enough, that's it, I cannot anymore. Look, Eileen, I'm sorry about everything. Look, I love you from the bottom of my heart and I'm sorry. Look, I don't do anything bad. The way he just flips from one personality to the other is terrifying. You're stealing from me. You're playing with me. You're fucking home. Stop fucking lying to me in my fucking face for a month. I don't want to ask nobody. It's mine and I come in and get it. I am with you or without you. You choose him. You want war? You will get fucking war. You will get fucking war. You will. And I am not fucking talking. You will. And I will see fucking lifetime in prison for this shit. Because you will not fucking fuck me over. Not now. That last message yeah. he sent Eileen where he said that he was going to come for her. Like, no matter how many times we've heard it, it still makes my hair stand on end. It's so dark. Cecilia and Eileen were just trapped in this sort of emotionally heightened state. 
They were so stressed that both of them were physically unwell from it. They weren't eating, they weren't sleeping, Mm. they'd isolated themselves from their friends and their family because they were just so stressed about the amount of money that they owed. And then Simon just leaves and they're just left to grieve the loss of a relationship and come to terms with the fact that nothing they've experienced in the last six, nine, 18 months has been real. It's all been a lie. And for Penilla, even though she wasn't in an intimate relationship with Simon, they had this really close friendship and her world was shattered as well. Just don't get it where you keep continuing lying to me. I'm so hurt. No one ever, ever in my life has hurt me as much as you have. I feel so hurt. I don't think I can ever going to be able to trust the person again my entire life after this. Like, I think I can't believe you did this to me. Something that really struck me about Simon is how confident he seems that he'll get away with it, that he will be caught, that there'll never be any consequences, which is baffling because he has been caught before. He was caught in Finland in 2015 for doing pretty much exactly the same thing to three women there. So my name is Jarkko Sipila. I work at the Finnish Channel 3 News, which is the second biggest news TV station in Finland. And I've been working as a crime reporter since 1991, so pretty long. As a seasoned hack, Jarko knows a good news story when he finds one. So when he was doing his weekly trawl through the Helsinki court documents in 2015 and came across the incredible story of an Israeli man who'd conned three Finnish women out of a total of 150,000 euros, his censors went up. Those women have never shared their identities or stories publicly. The fraud involving Finland began in spring of 2015 and continued until September when the policeman arrested him. The first woman met Simon, or rather Mordecai Tapiro as he was calling himself at the time, on holiday in Thailand in February 2015. And he appeared to be a rich businessman and arms dealer and had all these um, credit cards but told that there were some financial problems due to his business. You can guess the rest. He persuaded the woman to pay for some of his essential costs starting with some flights, but of course it continued. The first lady was cheated for 38,000 euros. And as the first cheat was going on, he met this other lady, and this time it was in Tinder. So the second lady we called in our story Kirsi, and she was living in Central Europe at the time. Mordecai suggested they meet up in Helsinki telling her he needed to be there for some important high-level meetings. And he was pretending to have businesses there and, and arms dealing. Kersey's story will be very familiar to anyone who's watched our film. He conned her out of thousands of euros by spinning a huge web of lies. But this time, he went one step further and also involved her family. Eventually, the swindler got also 13,000 euros of this Kirsi's parents' money and got them to loan him also money. So it's a very tragic story. The third Finnish victim lost 60,000 euros to Mordecai. 
She also left her secure job in response to his fake promise of a glittering new career working alongside him. In the meantime, he just needed her to take out a few loans on his behalf. But of course, he never paid anything. In September of that year, one of the women finally reported Mordecai to the police. And when he was arrested, he was found to be carrying a stash of fake documents. He had two forged Israeli passports, three forged Israeli driving licenses, two forged Israeli flight permits, and five forged American Express credit cards. Mordecai was prosecuted under his real name, Shimon Hayut. Shimon told the court that he was a businessman whose assets had been frozen, but that he did actually have three million euros in different bank accounts. And he kept up these fantasies throughout his trial, telling the court... That he was in constant danger of death and he had to flee London in 2014 for Thailand because he had been kidnapped to Israel and... He told in court that he had not said to the women that he was doing arms trades, but it was more of a complex matter that he couldn't tell even the court. The court stated in the decision that they don't believe his explanations at all and considered it illogical, unbelievable and imaginative. And he was sentenced to three years in prison for aggravated fraud. When we were making the film, we got hold of the court documents from this Finnish case. Mm. And as we reveal in the film, it actually turned out that one of these Finnish victims had a baby with Simon. It was the woman who was on Cecilia's first date. She was there on the private jet and had the child with her. We tried to speak to all three of the Mm. Finnish victims, both for the film and for the podcast, and totally understandably... They want to put all of this behind them and keep trying to move on with their lives. Their argument was, why expose ourselves? Why put ourselves through the trauma of reliving what he did to us? Because it's not going to stop him. Nothing's going to stop him. He goes to prison and then he gets out and he's still a con man. Mm -hmm. So nothing changes. I think it's very difficult to rehabilitate a con artist. Forensic psychologist Kerry Danes again. But sometimes they will spend that time in prison thinking, how can I do it better? How can I do it in a way where the rewards are so much bigger that the potential cost of being caught makes it worth it? Unless Simon is forced to face a really severe consequence, Kerry doesn't think prison will ever put him off. Look at the excitement that he's been able to create, the money that he's been able to create for himself. They say that crime doesn't pay, but clearly in this instance, it does. Maybe money is all that Simon desires. But what about real relationships, real friendships? Is he capable of any of that? When you're using a fake name... How real can any relationship be? And if you can't actually say to somebody, this is who I really am and this is what I really do and be accepted, then how can that be love? So actually, he's put himself in a situation where he could never be sure that somebody truly loves him for him because he doesn't show them himself. And that's actually pretty sad, isn't it? 
he's actually cutting himself off from love in many respects. I find it quite difficult to have any sympathy for him in this respect, and I don't think he'd want our sympathy either. But I think Kerry's point is interesting. One thing that we should hand to Simon is that the fake relationships that he forms are with really great people. I mean, we loved hanging out with Cecilia and Penilla and Eileen. And so you wonder if he gets something out of that, being with people who care about him, being with people who are loving to him. Maybe it's all about his ego and the fact that they are doing what he tells them to do. You know, what's more important to Simon than love is admiration. Mm. I spoke to someone who knew him when he was really young and still operating under his given name, Shimon. My name is Courtney Simmons Miller. I'm from the UK originally. I now live in Cyprus. I've lived here since I was 18, 19 years old. Courtney owns a beauty salon and is the director of a candle manufacturing company in Limassol, a city on the southern coast of Cyprus. She's lived there for over a decade and first met Simon when they worked together in a shopping mall. He was working with me on the Dead Sea stool. We were on the hair straighteners and hair extensions, so that was quite funny. <laughs> we used to clip them in his hair. <laughs> so it was good fun to work with. It was really good fun. We were really good buddies, you know, like we spent day in, day out together. It was the summer of 2010 and they were both 20 years old. We worked together maybe for about six or seven months, maybe a year, I can't really remember, it was many years ago. And Simon was still using his real name, Shimon Hayut. He was good fun, he was very into fashion, he was into the nicer things in life. We always used to kind of take the mick out of him that he was a bit obsessive about things like that, always taking pictures of himself, etc. As Courtney's friendship with Simon grew, she began to take him under her wing socially. We felt a bit sorry for him because he always seemed like a little bit lost. So me and my friend, we used to always take him out to the local nightclubs. And yeah, he was always out posing, you know, with the girls. <laughs> Courtney remembers Simon as a bit of a wheeler dealer, always coming up with new money-making schemes. You know, he always had a good idea. He was always dreaming something up. Nobody really took him that seriously because he was just living in a bit of a, you know, a, a dreamland. You know, like he was a really likable character. I mean, I remember when he said, Courtney, I've never met anybody like you. You're like my best friend. I adore you. We're really close and I trust you. Yeah, he was probably practicing with me. <laughs> I probably was the first girl he kind of swindled, maybe. Patient zero. Oh, dear. Yeah, probably. Simon had told Courtney that he wanted to be a pilot and was saving up for flying lessons. After about six months in Cyprus, he returned to Israel. And then he called me and he said, Courtney, I'm actually the heir to Israeli airlines or my dad owns an airline. And I said, oh, that's weird. Why, why would you be working in a Dead Sea company with me then for peanuts an hour and he goes oh my dad wanted 
for me to learn the value of money. And I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And he used to say that his dad was very like strict Jewish. So I suppose me not knowing so much, you know, about the Jewish communities, I thought, okay, that makes sense. And yeah, he said, when I get back to Cyprus, I'm going to open some companies and I want you to be my second, my personal assistant. I trust you. I don't trust anybody else. You know, I'm going to pay you whatever you want. We're friends. Sounds exciting. Like I'm in totally. You know, I trusted him. Courtney quit her job and began working for Simon. Just before he got back to Cyprus, he called with her first assignment. He said, I want you to go and rent me like a very luxurious brand new BMW so that I can go to all my business meetings in style. I said to him, you know, I'm here with nothing. Like, how am I supposed to pay for this? So then he just said, look, I'm going to read you the card numbers that I have. And I said, okay, cool. So I went to the car rental company. I said, my boss wants to rent a car here. He doesn't have international driving license, so I'm going to rent it on my driving license. Is that okay? The guy said yes, because in Cyprus, they don't care. So he was actually aware of it. And I said, okay, cool. So, you know, the guy punched the card numbers into the machine and it all went through. Like there was no reason for me to suspect anything. And we rented the car and everything was fine for, I don't know, like a month or so. A few weeks after Simon returned to Cyprus and had been cruising around Limassol for his business meetings, Courtney got a call from the car rental owner. And he said, you need to come back and sign some more papers for the car. And I said, OK, I'm coming down. So then I phoned Simon and he said, OK, I'm coming down too. When they arrived at the car rental company, the owner explained that there had been a problem with the credit card and they needed to go to the police station together. And he said, don't worry, it seems like it's a big mistake, but we just need to sort all of this out. And so we arrived at the police station. Again, I'm thinking, like, there's, like, nothing wrong. And as soon as we get out of the car, Simon turned to me and he goes, oh, would you mind holding my wallet for me? And I said, yeah, no problem. A decision she'd later come to regret. We went into the interview rooms and then I kind of realised it was really serious because the policeman just sat us down and he was like right you need to tell me everything these are stolen credit cards were you in on this and I was like no that's that can't be that can't be true the car rental owner was in the room as well and he just kind of looked at me and he was like you knew <gasps> you knew and then it kind of dawned on him as well I think and I was like no I didn't know what's going on and then Simon's like just completely blagging it he's like no this is all a big misunderstanding call my lawyer don't worry this is all going to be sorted out so that kind of reassured me and I was just kind of you know laughing and joking with the police officer saying like am I going to be out for tea ha ha and he goes absolutely not the police separated Courtney and Simon for interrogation and I remember the police officer saying you need to tell the absolute truth now like you're alone and he was trying to like make me admit something and he was getting quite angry, this police officer. And I was like, look, if you're telling me that the credit cards are stolen, I've never even seen them. And he said, oh, so you've never even seen what name is on the card? I said, actually, no, I haven't. And he goes, oh, I don't believe you. Because I'm sure it just sounds ridiculous. 
Simon seemed so utterly nonplussed that Courtney took that as her cue to relax and feel confident that all would be well. It reassured me a lot because, you know, if he was panicking and I saw the panic in his face, I'd be like, oh God, he's done it. Courtney had forgotten that she was still looking after Simon's wallet. So when we were officially arrested, I had the stolen credit cards on me. It was a little harder to deny her involvement in the credit card fraud when she had the evidence in her possession. I remember having waves of, like, panic, anger, and then just, oh, it's all fine. (laughs) Oh, God, I was such an idiot. They spent the night in custody. And then in the morning, we went straight into court. Where they were charged with international credit card fraud. I remember vividly sitting next to him in court saying, tell me now if you have done this. Tell me now. If you care about me... You need to tell me what you've done and you need to tell the truth because I need to get a lawyer. <laughs> if this is a big misunderstanding, I won't bother, you know, telling my family to waste money on a lawyer. But if you've done this, I need a lawyer and so do you. And he was like, I can't believe you're saying that. Do you not trust me? I'd never put you in that situation. And he just totally reassured me. When they were returned to custody, Courtney rang her mum in desperation, asking her to get in touch with the British Embassy. And that's when she realised how much trouble she was really in. When the British High Commission woman came in, it was, oh my God, this is really, really serious. International credit card fraud. It was very scary. Both Courtney and Simon spent the next three weeks in prison and were then released on bail. They had to report to the police station twice a week, but it wasn't long before Simon stopped turning up and it was clear he'd fled the country leaving Courtney to face the entire legal process on her own. I wasn't even angry. I was just terrified. It was back and forth to court maybe for like three years. So every time I was thinking, oh my God, this might be the time when I go to prison for a year (laughs) or two years or however. I wasn't allowed to leave the country for, I think, two years because I was a flight risk. And yeah, it was absolutely terrible. The whole ordeal took a huge toll on Courtney and her family, who were terrified about her future. On top of that, the financial burden was enormous. It was really expensive. I had a good lawyer and obviously the police realised that I had no clue that the cards were stolen. So, my goodness, the relief when I was acquitted. Courtney only ever heard from Simon once during the whole ordeal. My ex-boyfriend grabbed the phone and was like, never call this number again. You've ruined, you know, the last year of her life. How could you do this to somebody? Like, we loved you. We trusted you. How can you do this? And then he passed the phone back to me and I said, I don't believe a word of what you've said. And he was still then trying to say, don't worry, I'm going to send you the money for the lawyer. Don't worry, I'm going to do this. Don't worry, I'm going to do that. And I said to him, don't ever call me again. And he never did. The next time Simon re-entered Courtney's orbit was a decade later, when a friend sent a link to a news story about a Tinder swindler. And she goes, oh my goodness, it's that Simon guy that got you in all that trouble. And I said, no way. And it was, it was him. I was gobsmacked. I was flabbergasted. Couldn't believe for the last 10 years he had been defrauding even more women. As with most of Simon's victims, for Courtney, the personal scars have remained long after the financial burden has passed. 
I own two businesses now. I would say I'm quite a shrewd businesswoman just because I just don't trust anyone because of Simon. So I suppose I have that to thank him for. Courtney's had 10 years to process her feelings about Simon. And now? I would say I felt sorry for him. I mean, it must be a really lonely situation to have to just defraud people all the time and have these fake relationships with people. I look on his Instagram all the time. I'm completely addicted to looking at his stupid Instagram because I do honestly believe he has some type of mental health issues. His self-esteem, I don't think, is there at all because he just surrounds himself with, you know, silly things like a Lamborghini. And I don't think he actually has any real friends. And that's probably what drives him even more to prove that I'm, you know, I'm Simon and I've got this and I've got that because he doesn't actually have anything real, which is really sad, actually. Mm. I think there's a strong possibility he'll listen to this podcast. If you could talk directly to Simon, what would you say to him? God, what the hell would I say to him? Um, Thanks for nothing. If you're so loaded now, send me a fucking (laughs) cheque to pay for my lawyer's fees that you cost me. Uh, Yeah, stop being so fucking selfish. From such an early age, he Mm. was only thinking about himself. It's an interesting stepping stone, isn't it, into the crimes that he's been doing today, which are also you know, fingerprintless. Then poor Courtney at, how old was she, 18? 20. 20, spent three years trying to sort out all of the legal stuff. Couldn't go home. Being with her friends, not being with her family. Yeah. And he just didn't give a crap. Yeah, it's a hard lesson to learn at that age. But it's also interesting because there was an international arrest warrant out for him in his real given name, Shimon Hayut. He fled So that's when he had to start using the Mordecai Tapiro identity. So this is the crime that led to the evolution of Mordecai. It's clear that every time he commits a crime, he learns from it and takes that learning into the next one. It's amazing that he gets away with it so often, though. Where does it stop? I think that Simon Levive has bought into his own con. Because I think that he wants to be this son of a billionaire playboy with all of these women hanging off his arm. And he wants this luxury lifestyle because he feels that he deserves it. And maybe he feels that he was deprived of it as a child. I always find it really interesting to talk to people about their childhoods. The story always starts in childhood. And the experiences that somebody has, the relationships that they have and how they make sense of all of that and how they carry that through with them. That's where we're going next. In episode three, we'll be visiting Simon's birthplace. We'll learn about his upbringing as the son of a rabbi in a strict Orthodox community where he committed his earliest crimes and hear a chilling tale from a family connection. Betrayal. Betrayal, that's the word I would use. Defiled, used. I was so shocked to my core. That's all in episode three of The Making of a Swindler. <laughs>